Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, in for Elaine Chuck. Two Starbucks baristas fought back after a pair of robbers held up their store. They were able to detain one of the robbers until police came. Now the robbers face criminal charges. But then Starbucks fired the baristas. Our legal roundtable has some thoughts on whether the baristas have a good lawsuit against Starbucks. And a St. Louis property owner wants a refund. She says the city promised to provide curbside recycling as part of its $14 a month trash fee, but the city hasn't provided the service. She's now leading a class action lawsuit seeking to recoup those payments. And once again, our legal roundtable is here to make sense of what it all means. Every month, we convene this panel of top St. Louis area lawyers, and I'm honored to come back to St. Louis Public Radio every month to host it. And this month's panel, it's a really good one. It's here with me today in studio. That includes Eric Banks. He's a former city councilor for the city of St. Louis, also an attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. And we're also joined today by the one and only Beavis Shock. He practices in Clayton at Shock Law. Beavis, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Sarah Swadish. She's a labor and employment attorney who is in private practice at the law office of Sarah Swadish. Sarah, welcome. Good afternoon. So let's kick things off by talking about Starbucks. Their store on South Grand, that's that famous flying saucer Starbucks that we all love, was held up by two gun-wielding robbers. Well, one of the robbers allegedly cracked a patron on the head and the gun broke. It wasn't a real gun. That's when several baristas fought back. These heroes were able to detain one of the bad guys. Now he's facing nearly a dozen felonies. But the baristas were fired. One of them says he's going to sue. Sarah, does he have a good case for wrongful termination? I would like to say yes, um, but probably not. Mm -hmm. It, it goes against our intuition that if we are helping, if we are being a good Samaritan, we won't be punished for it. But that's simply not true. Most stores, most retailers have a no chase policy. Uh, a few of the big box retailers say if somebody's leaving with 50 bucks in merchandise, don't stop them. Yeah. Let them go. And most of these places, retailers also have policies that say under no circumstances, even if it's $1,000, do you go past the curb? They simply won't let the employees uh, stop thieves. Yeah. Uh, the work comp risk is too high. The injuries are too high. Injuries to other patrons are too high. Most of these employees are taught that friendly service is the best deterrent. Yeah. Right. Follow up with the customer, meet them, smile at them, look them in the eye. They don't want to be remembered. They're <laughs> going to walk away. So I, I actually got into this lawsuit and I looked at it and the, the individual, Mr. Harris, is not suing because he was fired for apprehending a thief. He's suing because he previously complained of unsafe conditions. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped the, the thief and he says, you fired me because I blew the whistle about unsafe conditions. He's not actually alleging 
he got fired for stopping the the thief. Now, is that just a clever lawyer finding their way around all those things that you just elucidated, or do you think this is a claim that it does make sense? This is this is potentially a whistleblower or somebody who spoke out and then re- was retaliated against. Oh, I, I I don't I haven't spoken with Mr. Harris specifically, um, but I would definitely give the case a second look if if he had called me. I would say, well, what was the nature of your complaints of unsafe condition? Was it the food was old and you're serving spoiled food? Then then the the apprehension and the complaint don't really go hand in hand. But if he's complaining about violence on the premises and then he gets attacked, I'd say, well, that makes a lot more sense. And he probably, our whistleblower law is is really tight on who qualifies as a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on what I know of him, he would absolutely qualify. Hmm. So I, I think he does qualify as a whistleblower. I'd like to see what his complaints are, but I think it gets a real a real look. Now, Eric Banks, uh, Sarah made a really good case of why Starbucks might have such a policy that employees aren't allowed to fight back in a situation like this. But you think about you're there and somebody's cracking someone upside the head. You might have some sort of fear of your life. Does that help you be able to justify, okay, I've now taken action to stop this robber. And that puts it in a different light than if you're just chasing some shoplifter, which, of course, we understand we can't have store employees doing that. It certainly does. And at a minimum, Starbucks's general counsel should be fired, as well as their um, marketing slash public relations department for allowing it to get this far. And what turned the corner for me was I understand that the miscreants told the customers to lie down Mm. and then to give up their belongings. And that sounds like a prelude to an execution to me. Now, admittedly, the gun was defective, um, but they got what they were entitled to. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying situation. When somebody tells you to, to lie down on the floor, you're thinking this is a bank robbery where Bonnie and Clyde are about to, to come out and shoot me and these patrons. Beavis, does that change the equation at all? A little bit, I think. Um, so first of all, there's, there is a, there's no, no weapons sign at Starbucks. You can bring your gun in, uh, at least the one I go to. Um, I can guarantee you that headquarters in Seattle, they got about 20 cops stopping the bad guys from coming in, so they're leaving their people out to dry. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good self-defense argument, as Eric's alluding to. I think Sarah's a genius to come up with the analysis, the, the whistleblower. Um, but but to me, it's like this deal with the Houthis or the Houthis attacking our ships. They do that. We know exactly where that, that bomb came from. It should be destroyed within 30 seconds, and everybody there should be killed. And that will slow them down. And it's the same thing at Starbucks. These people coming in, whether it's Starbucks, Cartier, or whatever, you have to attack back to let them know where the real standards are. Dear Lord, never put me in a Starbucks with Beavis. That is terrifying. Yes, one attacker had a defunct gun. There is a second attacker and we don't know if he has a gun or a knife or some other weapon. And so we can wild cowboy this scenario after the fact and say, good job stopping the thief. But that conduct by Mr. Harris and Mr. Jones could have resulted in somebody else getting killed. Mm-hmm. They didn't. I mean, the, thankfully, the second uh, thief ran off. You Was know, later apprehended. Yeah, and later apprehended. But in that moment when they decide back, they don't know if... Uh, Thief number two has a weapon. Well, what about Eric's point? 
I mean, they're getting ready to execute execute these people. I'm going to defend myself. I'm not lying down for <laughs> no, any of this stuff. No, 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 absolutely not. Every every thief, every burglar, every everybody says get on the ground because a person on the ground is less dangerous. It does not mean execution. It means get on the ground because you're gonna. It's going to create, oddly enough a safer environment. Hmm. Well, Sarah, you are a, a seasoned hand in these. If, if I'm ever at a Starbucks that's getting held up, I want Sarah there to be telling me what to do. It's, you know, as a good lawyer would, uh, that's that's some good legal advice. This is why I love hosting the Legal Roundtable, is we might be talking about Starbucks and baristas who've gotten fired. The next thing you know, someone's bringing up the Houthis. Did not realize I should have to prepare for, for that topic to come up today. But maybe you have thoughts on how this all pans out legally. This is our Legal Roundtable. We've got three lawyers here. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. And you can join the conversation. Share your thoughts on whether you think this is a, a case of a whistleblower, case of a wrongful termination. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Sarah, if Starbucks had not fired these young men, do you think this is opening them up for liability or opening them up for a situation where later somebody who does fight back, if something goes wrong, they could say, oh, well, Starbucks encouraged this. This happened at the St. Louis Starbucks in the newspaper. Does that potentially create a problem for them? I, I don't think so, because like all situations are different, right? We're not allowed to protect property with a life but we can protect a life with a life and so i i think it just depends on what weapon they have and how many thieves there are and i, I think the 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 circumstances are, are too want mm -hmm. too nuanced so i'm going to change gears here earlier this week the city of st louis lost an appeal that it had filed with the eighth circuit court of appeals and the appellate justices made it clear public officials who use twitter to communicate the business of government cannot block constituents just for disagreeing with them the case was filed against aldermanic president lewis reed who of course is now in prison on something totally unrelated um, a major bribery scandal here in st louis but before he went to prison for that uh, this lawsuit was filed judge john ross ruled against reed and assessed the city one dollar in nominal damages. The woman who was suing for being blocked wasn't looking for a big payday, probably would never have gotten one, but she got this $1 reward. The city appealed, and now they have officially lost again on the appellate court level. As a non-attorney, Eric Banks, I'm sitting here thinking, $1, why didn't they just pay the $1 and put this whole thing behind them? Perhaps because of the issue of attorney's fees, because I think that the ACLU, as well as the Washington U Clinic, would be entitled to the fair market value of the attorney's fees that they would have expended. So I think that that is what's missing from this equation. So if they can win on the appellate level, they can say, hey, we don't have to pay these legal fees after all. The city could say that, but they didn't win at the appellate right. level. Right. <laughs> it's a, now a, a sad hypothetical for the city. These, uh, legal, these legal fees can be more expensive than what a judge would ever award. Right. Well, the city just doubled down on dumb. I, I looked at the fee award. The fee granted to the ACLU was only $131,000. They didn't get their expert fee of twelve grand, and they got some filing fees and deposition fees of about three grand. So the city only has to pay $135,000 in fees. So now that they've lost at the appellate court level, though, they're going to have to pay attorney's fees for the appeal on the, for the work on the appeal. And $131,000 now is is painfully reasonable. In fact, the ACLU cut their fees. I have mm -hmm. seen fee to wars 
fee awards of $800,000. I got one in March of 23 for $325,000. So this is not about the attorney fee award. This is about the city wanting to prove some other point and not wanting to be wrong. And frankly, the Eighth Circuit is conservative. They thought they're going to have a better chance in the Eighth Circuit. And that's why they took it here, and that obviously did not work. Beavis? My question is, why does the city take the position it takes in this case? It makes no sense to me. Surely the city's interested in the First Amendment, the right of free speech. When one gives it the nose test, what does your nose think? One says, well, I think if if you're using city business, if you're doing city business on Twitter, you kind of can't stop people from saying that's bad. Even now, yeah. you, there's sometimes there's a monitoring system for people who are crazy, obscene, all that. Sure. Nobody's going to quarrel with any of that. But just to say, Lou, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. They shouldn't have done that. And I, I do know Sarah Feltz, who's the person who was blocked by Lewis Reed, a very reasonable person. She was not on there harassing him, calling him names. I understand our politicians do have to deal with a lot of abuse on Twitter. I can understand why they'd want to block those people. That wasn't the case here, which it, it does speak to Beavis's question. The city's primary argument was that Lewis Reed was not a final decision-making authority and that he didn't have approval to do this. And and, in my humble opinion, uh, the city has a lot of irrational people in leadership running around, and if they can win this argument that that he didn't have final making authority, it creates some buffer on some of their other poor leadership conduct. So if, God forbid, we end up with another aldermanic president who's doing something like accepting bribes, um, this this would have maybe given them some cover on that. I, I don't know about bribes, but um, for instance, uh, Sheriff Betts, he's an elected official. He sets his own policies. Yeah. And, I, and I have heard from them that we can't do anything about him. He sets his own policies. Mm-hmm. And I think they're trying to insulate his uh, decisions. I, I kind of like this theory. Uh, another interesting piece of this is that by the time that the case needed to be appealed, um, Lewis Reed was out of that office. You now have a new aldermanic president, Megan Green. And so it had to be appealed officially in her name. And yet she is on record in an email to the city councilor's office saying, I don't want this appealed. I don't think people should block their, their critics on Twitter. Eric, you're a former city councilor. How do you navigate that question of your client might say, I don't want you to do this, and you're looking at this maybe from the perspective Sarah just described. You're saying, well, this is going to be helpful for this entity down the road. How do you balance those two needs? One of the hardest things about being the city councilor is deciding who is your client. Is your client the um, the city itself? Is it the mayor? Is it the president of the board of aldermen? It's difficult to decide. Generally speaking, you decide based on following the person who appointed you. That would mm-hmm. be the mayor. And if you cannot back the mayor's play, the honorable thing to do is to resign. So I have to think that the mayor wanted this appealed. The city councilor agreed with it. It wasn't so egregious of a decision that it warranted her ten- pending tending her resignation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, and and that might well be what happened here. I know also there's some thinking amongst people who pay attention to city politics. The city councilor uh, comes out of a big law firm, is very smart, very aggressive. Maybe she wanted to appeal this on that same principle Sarah's talking about. 
I don't, we may never know. Something that I did want to mention, though, it's actually a law student at Washington University's First Amendment Legal Clinic who argued this before the Eighth Circuit. Her name is Emma Kenny Pesia. She won this argument as a law student. I just thought, that's pretty cool. Got to give her a shout out on the legal roundtable. And of course, today, uh, that is what we're doing here on St. Louis on the Air. We're joined by three expert attorneys. That is Eric Banks. We're also joined by Beavis Shock and Sarah Swadish. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly. And when we're back, we're going to talk about Missouri versus China, a case I thought we'd never have to talk about again. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Now, got to talk about a case here. Uh, I had a surprising twist. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt sued the People's Republic of China for allegedly introducing COVID-19 into the world and wreaking all the havoc that then followed. Well, a judge threw the lawsuit out in its entirety. A whole lot of us are like, yeah, I saw that coming. Um, but the judge who threw out this lawsuit was just overruled by the Eighth Circuit Appeals Court. So Missouri versus China survives. Sarah, I remember you being on a previous legal roundtable. You assured me this would not happen. I, I said that dog don't hunt. And I'm now going to double down on that as well. That This dog still don't hunt. We just haven't put it out of its misery yet. And why so? <laughs> okay. Um, so I think I think the, the claims can really be put into two different categories. The first claim is the, the cover-up claim. And then the second claim uh, is the hoarding of PPE, uh, per, uh, personal protective gear. And in the first claim, it was really claims for like nuisance and um, in, in the in the John Ross, the district court said that the Foreign Service Immunity Act is that right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, that it applies. And it basically says you you know you can't have Missouri going around and suing foreign countries, right? And Eric Schmidt was like, "Well, I'm suing the Chinese Communist Party." John Ross didn't buy that. Neither did the Eighth Circuit. Correct. They said no. The Immunity Act applies. They haven't waived. They haven't waived the immunity. And the things that Schmidt, the state of Missouri, were complaining about didn't have anything to do with commercial activity. You know, a public nuisance isn't necessarily going to be a direct. Uh, isn't going to be um, a commercial activity, and we can't really trace any direct harm to it. But the Eighth Circuit said, well, this hoarding of PPE. That could plausibly be a claim. Um, the state just has to allege it. And what I what I picked up on from the the, the two judges, the, the the what they said is, well, it's plausible. They have to state the facts that show that there was a direct harm, meaning China knew that this virus was coming. And they took all of the masks and they took all the factories and then the, the, the PPE couldn't get to the state of Missouri and our workers couldn't get to work and, and they disrupted our flow. And so the Court of Appeals said, yeah, you could make the argument, but you're still going to have to allege the facts, yeah. more facts, and you're going to have to prove these facts. They and haven't so, proven it yet, but they're allowed to make the argument. Yes. So on a motion to dismiss, 
the claims, uh, the allegations are considered true. They just have to state a claim. Uh, when you get to motion for summary judgment or to trial, you got to put meat on those bones and you got to prove it. So, yes, it's still alive for now, but I don't think it'll be alive much later. And if I had a donut, I would bet that Attorney General Bailey is sad that this thing is back and he's now got to do something with it. Now, Beavis, I have to see some irony here because the allegation is that China hoarded masks and then, you know, only lower quality ones could get to the U.S. And so Missouri suffered. Missouri's now suing. But Eric Schmidt doesn't believe masks stop viruses like COVID-19. He has sued to stop masks. This seems like kind of a dog of a case for a Missouri attorney general to bring. Don't, don't you think that he brought the case for political purposes, make it look good? He was coming up for election for the Senate. I know what I'll do. I'll sue China. And... and, and I'm a cynic about this, um, and, and I spoke to this guy, Scharf, Will Scharf, who's running now against Bailey, who I think wrote the thing for Schmidt, and he says, oh, no, Beavis, there's merit here. Okay, well, that's fine. But there's a thing called comedy. Now, C-O-M-I-T-Y is a law school concept that nobody's paid any attention to since then. Not the comedy of, of laughing at right, our no. attorneys general. C-O-M-I-T-Y. And comedy means that the federal government could sort of come in and take this over. I think everybody anticipated Eric Schmidt, Will Scharf, as soon as this thing got any legs at all, the feds would come in and bring the case hmm. and they could get out from under it. But the feds haven't done that yet. So everything that has gone wrong, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And yet Missouri continues to bring this case. One of the things I was most surprised by, Eric, they still haven't managed to serve China in this case. The judges are just coming in saying, well, if China were to have a reply, we guess that maybe this should be allowed to proceed. This seems pretty unusual that here's a party that probably, typically, would end up with a default judgment. Yeah, it's um, quite confusing and ordinarily the first rule of civil litigation is you have to get service on the defendant. Yeah. And if they have not gotten service on the defendant, everything else is academic. And maybe that's the whole point. We have to have an academic discussion about this because it is interesting to talk about whether Missouri can just go around suing foreign governments. I mean, do you think the, the Eighth Circuit is, is keeping this alive? They want to keep Missouri in the mix? Everybody expects the feds to come in and, and take it over. Yeah, but they are not going to take this over. Well, I mean, may maybe if the feds were to conclude there's some merit to it. Yeah. I mean, unless Joe Biden's getting blackmailed by the Chinese as well as his son, who knows? I, I, I think, I think, I think uh, there's just too many intervening actors. There's too many in intervening actors on, on and then and showing a direct harm to the state that. I, I just don't, I, I don't think they're going to be able to come up with the facts. They're not going to be able to come up with the evidence. I don't see the feds taking this over. I, I, I would imagine Bailey hopes this thing dies in the shadows until he can get reelected. <laughs> so here's another case that involves uh, some national politics. Former Missouri Solicitor General D. John Sauer had a moment in the spotlight earlier this month. He was representing former President Trump in front of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Sauer argued basically that Trump can't be prosecuted for acts he took in his official capacity, like, say, encouraging people to come to the Capitol on January 6th. The appeals court hasn't ruled yet, 
Beeb, is any sense of whether there's a good argument here that uh, John Sauer is going to be the hero of the day? Well, I think there's a very strong chance of that. I, I think that Trump's arguments for immunity are extremely strong here. Hmm. Um, uh, it, regardless of whether you hate Trump or love Trump, the president can – I mean, he never said, get your guns and go shoot Pence. He didn't, he didn't say anything like that. And um, an interesting part of the case is that uh, Trump has said he can go into Fifth Avenue in New York City and shoot somebody and his, his public would not reject him for that, which is a bizarre thing to say. <laughs> Indeed. And, and I don't think is right. <laughs> um, but it, when we look at how far presidential immunity goes, Robert Bork years ago, a very distinguished scholar, re rejected for the Supreme Court of the United States by Ted Kennedy, said all you can do with the president because he's an equal branch is impeach him and then you can um, attack him criminally. The problem is that Trump is no longer the president so he can't be impeached. But this idea of immunity is that a person in a position of authority and power has to be able to act without getting second guessed on everything, which is a pretty good sensible sure. rule. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the problem that comes about is is how far that's going to go. So when Sauer says that that um, Trump could shoot somebody and not be prosecuted for it, everybody just scratches their head and say that that's just not right. Right. You you can't have a country that operates that way, can you? And yet D. John Sauer is that's basically his argument. It is his argument. And yet, and, well, the other side put him there. Well, right, they right. Bought, I, mean, I mean, yeah. When you go into a lawsuit, into an argument, you got to be prepared for the worst thing they're going to throw at you. and uh, Maybe our former Solicitor General was, was not quite prepared, says Beavis, who's otherwise a fan of his argument. Sarah, you seem even more skeptical. You just asked Beavis, uh, how does Sauer come out in this? And my first thought was, he's another unpaid lawyer, right? He's going to lose this. He shined the turd as best he could, but this argument isn't going anywhere. I mean, even he conceded that, so Trump wants complete immunity. He wants complete immunity. And Sauer was asked, well, what if, what if the president starts selling secrets or selling pardons? And Sauer says, well, like, that really wouldn't be in his official capacity. And that is the first crack in his whole argument of complete immunity. Yeah. Because he says, well, it's not my official act. So then we get into, well, what's an official act? Is asking people to storm the Capitol to stop an election. Was that in your official capacity? And in and, and hypocrisy, at Trump's impeachment hearing, his lawyer was arguing, there's an investigative process happening. Let that play out. Right. Because he doesn't he shouldn't be he shouldn't be convicted here. Let the investigative criminal process play out. And now we are letting it play out. And he's going, no, no, no. I have immunity. Don't let that play out. So um, I, I think Sauer did the best he could. I don't think this is a strong case for immunity, but I would imagine there's going to be a lot of horse trading on what this opinion is going to look like. They're not going to give carte blanche immunity, um, but I don't think we will start second-guessing the president on official acts. I think, I think they're going to 
come up with some ugly language that nobody likes about what's an official act. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't want to create a situation where once somebody leaves office, they could be criminally prosecuted for, we don't like how they handled immigration. I mean, this if they phrase this too broadly, it could open a giant can of worms for all future presidents. I think like all complicated issues, the language just gets ugly. Abortion rights, what does that mean? What is too far? What's free, freedom of speech? Qualified immunity is starting to get really ugly. Uh, and so when it's hard, we give it ugly language and we do the best we can. Well, it's going to the Supreme Court, so that's what's, what's going to happen. The Eighth Circuit's going to be irrelevant. Mm. I mean, they, just, they, have to, they have to resolve this. Something this level. big. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. Uh, that is three top attorneys sharing their perspectives on a bunch of important cases that involve Missouri and involve St. Louis. That is attorney Beavis Shock. We're also joined by Sarah Swadish and Eric Banks. We do need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a purported class action lawsuit over the city's aborted curbside recycling program. They say people have been paying these monthly fees. They haven't been getting the service they were promised. Does that make for a good lawsuit? We'll discuss when we return. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Now, a case that I have personally been waiting to see happen for months Everybody in St. Louis talking about the fact that the city has just sort of faded away doing a curbside recycling program. I keep thinking, when is somebody going to sue over this? Well, somebody did sue over it. A Chesterfield woman has filed this class action lawsuit against the city of St. Louis. She owns property in the city, and as a result, she's forced to pay this $14 a month trash fee. Now, the city's own marketing for this fee says it includes curbside recycling pickups. The city charged that fee for months, however, when even by its own admission, it was not actually picking up the recycling. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests they're still not picking up the recycling. And this woman is suing, saying everybody who has been paying for this service for the past five years, not getting all they were promised, they are part of this class. Beavis, does that make for a good class action lawsuit? I don't think so. And there's something called sovereign immunity. Now, this goes back to England before the revolution. The idea was that the king was called the sovereign because he was the king. You couldn't sue him. So because government controls government and power, then we have this idea that you really can't sue the government except in very specialized circumstances. I think this is one of the times where they get to say, well, we were meant to do it. We didn't get to it that day. We had got busy and we, we intend to do it tomorrow and that kind of thing. And I think so I think the case will be thrown out on sovereign immunity. Somebody else tell me I'm wrong. Eric, tell him he's wrong. I disagree. You're wrong. <laughs> and my position is sovereign immunity is best applied for tort actions, not for breach of contract actions, which is this what this lawsuit is akin to. I think the city's good for it. Okay. Sarah, you be the tiebreaker here. I'd be inclined to agree with Eric. There are proprietary functions, which means a non-government entity can do it, uh, a private company can do it, and you can sue for those those proprietary actions. And then there's the discretionary functions like law enforcement. You can't sue a prosecutor for not bringing charges. There's national intelligence. There's all sorts of things that are discretionary, discretionary mean within the government's discretion to do. When it's proprietary and the government does it and they don't do it well or they fail to do it, 
you can sue them. And so I don't think trash pickup is a discretionary function. The city has chosen to do it. It could be it could be leased out the service. There could be a service agreement with waste management company. There's a lot of people that pick up trash or or recycling. The city has decided to do it. It's like they're 911. They're doing it and they're failing and they could and should be sued for it. And yet, as I'm looking at this, it seems almost like a case of false advertising more than anything. It's not like city residents were paying a separate recycling fee. It's more like they said, oh, well, trash pickup includes this. Can you go after the city government saying, hey, you said you'd have timely 911 service. You haven't provided that for years. Is that a lawsuit? Yes. Yes. Okay. We and, should bring that lawsuit. And I think I think we talked about it a, a couple months back that there was an individual who they repeatedly called 911 and they didn't come and the person ended up dying from their gunshot inflicted they had a gunshot and they ended yeah. up bleeding out in their car and had 911 showed up. Yeah. They would probably be alive. Uh obviously this is not the death of anyone, but the city needs to release the claim to services it's not providing. Right. I, I think they can be sued. I think they should be sued. If they're telling people they're going to pick up trash and they're not, then they shouldn't be charging for it. Yeah. And these people are, are not saying you have to resume this program. They're just saying we want our money back. Beavis, you have fought to try to get refunds for the city's earning tax in a way that I feel like might have some similarities to this. That doesn't run into the sovereign immunity question? Well, it's it, it's really a completely different thing. Um we assert, and the case is ongoing, we've won in the trial court, we're on appeal, oral arguments coming up February 14th, Valentine's Day is how we love the taxpayer, uh, but it's, it, so we don't think they have sovereign immunity for a direct violation of a, an, an ordinance that says you, it only has to be for services rendered or work done in the city and they won't give people their money back. Um, that, that is these are people who paid the earnings tax even though they are like working at home right. not even coming into the city limits right okay right right, right. so it's just a direct the people don't owe the tax yeah the this thing with the with the money for the uh, service fee and she's absolutely right Sarah's right that there's this proprietary distinction but I, I just I'm just not seeing it yeah seems like part of what makes this different here is that the city charges extra for this. Like, that's kind of what I think has gotten people's goads. Like, every month they send me this bill. And yet, this is happening in the context of something that, Beavis, you've mentioned. Um, the international market for recycling has been rocked. Well, yeah, there's no market for the paper. The paper's where the action is for the volume. Um, and they just pick up that stuff and they throw it in the main dump. And what, why is any of this going on? I mean, it, it's, it's a complete fiasco, as though everybody feeling good about picking up litter and claiming it's being recycled, even though it's not being recycled. What, what are we doing this for? I mean, money's valuable. Resources are valuable. Don't waste. We call it wish cycling. Yeah. Right? Just, you just throw it in there and you're like, oh, I wish it gets recycled. I hope it gets recycled. It's wish, wish cycling. And we know we have some residents who've recorded, you know, video. They've caught trash workers just loading these in. So your wish, your wish is not being granted, at least in some some city neighborhoods. There's another matter that I feel like is, is something you hear people talk about when you're out and about, in addition to how angry they are about the fact that their recycling is not getting recycled. Uh, this is not yet law, but Sarah, this is something you have your eye on. Missouri legislators want to change the law around cannabis and workplace compensation. 
and not to do it to acknowledge the new realities of cannabis being legal here. They actually want to move the law in a different direction. Tell us what's going on with this and, and why this has you paying close attention. Sure. So there is a senator out of Cape Girardeau, uh, excuse me, senator out of Jeff City, representative out of Cape Girardeau. And the work comp law currently says that if you have alcohol or a non-prescribed controlled substance in your system when you have a workplace accident, your benefits get cut in half. So if you are drunk at work and you the forklift runs over you, you're only going to get half your benefits. The problem is back in November of 22, Missouri passed recreational drug and we have medical marijuana. So those are no longer considered non-prescribed controlled substances. And so this representative from Cape and senator from Jefferson City, they want to say, if you have marijuana in your system, you will lose, still lose 50% of your benefits. I, I think in some respects, they're changing the law. In some respects, they're not. If, if you test positive for meth or cocaine or there's alcohol in your system, yes, you're going to lose 50% of your benefits because you are impaired. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind this is if you're impaired, you don't get your benefits. The problem is there is no accurate test for marijuana. Hmm. You can have a gummy or smoke your miracle metal, miracle, miracle. That's where my head is, my medical marijuana. Uh, and a week later, it will test as in your system. And so you will not be impaired. You can be at work and you will get run over by the forklift and you will only get half your benefits because of the lingering residue of the marijuana. We, wow. there, there is no scientific test yet that can test for currently impaired by marijuana. Uh, and these legislatures don't, legislators don't care and they don't have an exemption for even medical marijuana. Wow. I mean, that seems like that could have a huge impact. It, it can have a huge impact. Yes, you could be a secretary and all of a sudden the roof caves in on you or your desk falls apart and you're not getting your benefits because you had a gummy two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, that seems somewhat terrifying. And it seems like it all stems back to this idea that we don't have a way to assess whether someone's actually high. There's no way they can do that the way that anybody could give me a breathalyzer and they know one way or the other. Science has not developed it for marijuana. We have it for meth and barbiturates and alcohol and all the other drugs. All It's a, it's a what is a 17 screen test where they can check for your impairment for all of them, uh, except for marijuana. Hmm. And naturally, the Missouri legislature is going to, you know, still run with this without having appropriate science. I, I must say I'm shocked. Eric, would, <laughs> what about you? Well, I, I agree. I think that um, it's problematic and the court's going to have to make a decision. Yeah. So in this past month, the Missouri Supreme Court threw out an appeal in a Sunshine Law case. This comes out of the city of Harrisonville. What was interesting to me, even as somebody who pays close attention to the Sunshine Law, didn't have to do with the details and the facts of this case, had to do with why the court ruled against these guys in the first place, and that was briefing deficiencies. Beavis, is it unusual the court wouldn't even rule on the merits, apparently because the brief was just so badly done? So here's the way this works. There are a bunch of rules about how the brief has to be prepared. People go to law school, they study that sort of thing, you get into practice, the rules are right in the book, you're supposed to follow it. Uh, obviously, the court has had a bunch of pretty bad briefs, and so they decided to put the hammer down. The purpose there is to create an incentive 
so that people begin to understand, oh boy, this is serious, I better get this right. Now, the Missouri Supreme Court takes 80, 90 cases a year. Um, that doesn't sound like very many to me no. for seven judges, ten, one, one a month per judge. Doesn't sound like they're working real hard. Uh, <laughs> I'm just telling you what Alrighty I think. Alrighty then. <laughs> but, uh, but, but here's the thing. I have written briefs with deficiencies. I've been up there, I don't know, 10 times. Yeah. And they call me. And it, there's, a, there's a woman down there I've known for, she's been there as long as I've been in practice. Hey, Beavis, you didn't double space a footnote here. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> She says, just file it again, okay? I said, sure. So the way this really works is it's just like the rest of life. Yeah. If you're a known person and you're basically doing things right, you're not embarrassing anybody, you're, 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 you're making arguments that are reasonable and sensible, they let you get away with things. If you're, if you're somebody that, first of all, it, it, that's a two-variable problem. I mean, how bad was the brief? Right. Um, and, then, and then who filed it? does matter. Anybody who thinks that who filed it doesn't matter doesn't really understand the way the real world works. It works in the business context where one person who's a good worker shows up on time, late a couple times, they overlook it, somebody else they're trying to get rid of, boom. Now then, they, then somebody brings a lawsuit, oh it's disparate treatment, I wasn't treated fairly. But at the end of the day, in the real world, it does matter who you are, and, uh, and I've certainly been very fortunate when I made little boo-boos up there. One, one happened a few months ago. And uh, they, just, they just said, hey, Beavis, fix this. Well, you mean dummy. You're supposed to read the rule. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So Beavis is in the mensch category where they, I'm you putting know. My, they, I'm putting myself in that category. They, I don't yeah, know if anybody they, else does. They do give him a chance to fix his briefs. And, and Eric, I know you're, you're, you know, you and I have talked about this issue before. They and, let you fix your briefs, too. Yeah, and perhaps my opinion would be expressed in more of a nuanced <laughs> fashion than Beavis. That is in keeping with my experience as well. Usually I receive the phone call before the deadline saying, hey, did you know? Kind of like, oh my goodness, and I fall on the sword and I'm very appreciative and they allow me to correct the error. Um, but then again, I'm kind of a um, nice guy. I go along, get along sure. type of person. I'm not trying to make waves, so. For those of us with less charm <laughs> and less wit, and a half less smile, uh, it scares the bejesus out of me, right? Because there are so, lots of rules. It's got to be 13 font, and the margins have to be this, and this has to be double spaced, and this is called an appendix, not an addendum. I mean, there's a thousand rules. Um, and for those of us with less charm or, or less acquaintance with the clerks, or maybe they have singled me out and it is a disparate treatment claim that he mocks um it scares me it scares me that my client who has done nothing wrong might get mm -hmm. dinged for me and i'm not suggesting that there's going to be all sorts of malpractice claims and i don't disagree with beavis that that's how the real world work works but it also um it makes me um uh, it makes me concerned for the real parties out there who have done nothing wrong other than maybe hire a sloppy attorney and they don't know it. So yeah. I, I would hate to see briefs completely dismissed. I would like to see the, you know, attorneys slapped on the wrist with the fine or, mm -hmm. or, or some other show cause order that, you know, scares the, the Jesus out of them and then they fix it. But this, this throwing out of 
briefs feels a little, a little draconian to me. It felt like the dissent in this case, that the, the justice who dissented was saying that. He's saying, look, we could look at the appellate record here. It is not like it would be impossible for us to come to a claim. And yet maybe the judges have to do this periodically to get our attention. Like, no, I, we, we need you to fi- follow the rules. It's like my kid's third grade teacher telling her, you know, if you don't sign this part of it, you're, you're going to have to redo this whole paper. That gets her attention. You get to redo the paper. You don't get thrown out and given an F. Okay, let's put it this way. Let's say you're charged with a crime. Do you want to use the public defender or you want to use Scott Rosenblum and Joel Schwartz? Well, I mean, I think... <laughs> who, your, who your mouthpiece is yeah. matters in the real world. And I don't know who the person is who filed this brief incompetently. It, and uh, I've never, I don't, don't know anything about the person, but it sounds like it was really poor, really, really bad. Got their go. And we said, there's two, it's a multi-factor thing. I mean, it's who, who filed it is part of it, and then also how bad is it? I mean, I, I don't really have any problem with them bouncing this one at all. First of all, the person did get their hearing at the Court of Appeals. That is true. The, the Supreme Court is a discretionary operation. They don't have to take any of them. They take some, whatever. I mean, they could have just chosen not to take this case. Instead, they're like, nope, here is why we're ruling against you. There's like a little twist of the screw right there. I, I mean, I'm hoping that's the way they would have ruled anyway, and this is just a way to make a point. Uh, but Beavis's statement, would you rather have a public defender or Rosenblum um, strikes me as a little elitist. Not everybody can afford Rosenblum. And so suggesting that you just go get a better attorney to do your brief um, and uh, is, uh, isn't, isn't reality. In all well, I'm a complete elitist. I believe in elitism. <laughs> but let me tell you, when, I mean, it's interesting. I've talked to Joel Schwartz about this a lot. And people who are poor find the money to get a good attorney. And I, I'm very respectful of the public defenders. They, do, they, terrific work. Work. they do terrific work. They do terrific really work. Do. Especially over, here in St. Louis. It's amazing some of the cases that they have they're, won. They're overwhelmed. But yeah. go ahead and have some conversations with people in the lower parts of society who have criminal problems in their families. Every one of them will tell you, it matters who represents you, period. For and sure. it does. And nobody's claiming a perfectly equal system. That It's impossible to have that. And we definitely don't have that. Uh, So last matter we have to talk about in our final two and a half minutes today, Mark McCloskey. His 15 minutes of fame aren't over yet. Uh, For those who've forgotten about this man, he brandished a gun at protesters walking by his home in the Central West End, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor, was pardoned by Governor Parson. He was back in the news last month because he lost at the appellate level. He wants to get his guns back. And the appeals court says, eh, you can't do that. Eric Banks, how do you see this case? I agree with the appeals court that he can't do that. It's a different standard for criminal matters as opposed to civil matters. The forfeiture of his guns is a civil matter. And I believe the city has met its burden in terms of proving that he is not entitled to get the guns back. Keep in mind, these guns are the ones that were actually used in the situation, not all of his other guns. Right. He's not a felon where he's been. He, th- this is just a fun little bit of thing to keep keep him in the news, all right? He's a personal friend of mine, but I know what's going on here. And uh, um, But I will say that expungements in Missouri are very lenient now. And I should I should jump in here, the second part of why Mark McCloskey was in the news. He is very good at staying in the news. He is also requesting an expungement. Yeah, so. and I think the purpose of the expungement would be that then he actually isn't good for the uh, misdemeanor, um, whatever he finally pled to, 
and then maybe then he can get his guns back. So that's, I think, maybe what's going on. But so, I think he'll get his expungement because it's so lenient now in Missouri. You just have to show that you haven't committed other crimes and enough time has gone by and you get it. So in this case, your friend Mark McCloskey had a special prosecutor, that's former U.S. Attorney Richard Callahan. Um, in a typical case, would that prosecutor come in and then theoretically make an argument, you shouldn't expunge this? Or is this just the judge sort of deciding in a vacuum? I've, I've never heard of that. Okay, a prosecutor will typically these expungements. You got to understand, you can do them by yourself. I hate to get have lawyers lose work, but um, a person just fills out the form and they they get in there and there's two or three things you haven't committed any other crimes. What other whatever I can't remember what the others are, and you get it. Sarah, we got thirty seconds left. I'm going to give them to you. Sure. McCloskey said he gets the guns back because he has a gubernatorial pardon. The court of appeals smacked him. They said. Missouri law is unequivocal that a gubernatorial pardon obliterates the fact of conviction, not the fact of guilt. An expungement is for destroying the records of a conviction. They are saying you're guilty. It doesn't matter if there's a conviction on the record or not. You're guilty. You're not getting them back. I don't think his expungement will probably go anywhere. Hmm. You don't think he's going to get expunged? The fact is he's guilty. Well, we are going to have to talk about this on a future uh, legal roundtable. I'm going to have to put Sarah's words back in her face, and I'll either say, Sarah, once again, you're right, or Sarah, you were wrong on this one, too. We'll be back for that. <laughs> Sarah Swadish of the Law Office of Sarah Swadish, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, Eric Banks, attorney and mediator at Banks Law, thank you. Thank you. And last but never least, Beavis Shock of Shock Law, thank you. Thanks for putting up with me, Sarah. You're nice to have me on when I'm going to say things that many of your audience members do not agree with. I I am very nice. I hope people take that into account. If you're angry about anything Beavis said, not my fault. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.